Our thanks to Danny Parody, Chris Henderson, and Bear Lamont for joining us, a political correctness panel that I think was accurately just described on Twitter by Kazmeister, who's listening in, says, a truly polite panel discussion on political correctness. That's our Canada. I thought that that was kind of funny. You made me chuckle because as we wrapped our panel and the three guests stood up to leave the studio, they remarked, well, that was rather Canadian of us, wasn't it? You know, on this show, we always want to try new things, have conversations on things that, you know, might be a little uncomfortable or unconventional. We never want you to feel like this show is too predictable. You can send in your thoughts on what you thought about our conversation. Brian has chimed in to 630-630, says, great discussion. Please have more. We need it as a society. Another listener says our society was founded on customs of being courteous. So I hope this whining comes full circle back to our roots. Have you heard about Tap Car? It's a new initiative, a startup right out of Edmonton that early on is getting credit as a potential competitor to Uber, which I suppose would imply it's also going to be a competitor to the traditional cab industry. Pascal Rifle joining us in studio with Tapcar. Pascal, it's nice to see you. Nice to be here, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. So no one will have seen Tapcar vehicles out already. Has anyone even downloaded the Tapcar app yet? Uh, we're not quite there yet, Ryan. So that will happen within the next few weeks as we get ready to launch in early March. What's this business all about? So Tapcar, as you mentioned, is a local initiative, um, and it, it is a, going to be a hybrid between the taxi, the traditional taxi model, and ride-sharing companies like Uber. So we'll have all the convenience of uh, Uber-type companies in terms of app technology, but it will have the safety and professionalism, professionalism of the traditional taxi model. So if I'm driving for Uber, I'm going, hey, he's saying that we're not safe and professional right now. Well, if you're driving for Uber, you might be thinking about uh, coming over to our side because <laughs> you will have, uh, uh, you know, you'll have more job security you'll probably end up uh, making a better living um, and you know our company is going to be very driver focused so I think there's going to be a lot of interest from both taxi drivers and Uber, Uber drivers uh, to come and join us. Would you have been able to even consider a startup like this even six months ago? Um, no, I mean, certainly the changes to the bylaw that the, the city enacted uh, you know has a, a, a huge role to play. I mean the thing is, as, as you know, basically the city completely deregulated the system at the end of January uh, by voting for this bylaw. So this has created the change in the industry that we think it makes it virtually impossible for the traditional taxi broker model to survive in the long term. So it really comes down to how do the taxi drivers that are currently in the system survive and how can they continue to make a good living. So that's why we came up with this system. We believe we'll be able to do that. How are you most different uh, when it comes to comparing Tapcar and Uber as it stands right now? Um, so some of the major differences are, first of all, is that we have all our drivers will have full commercial insurance. Um, they will have Class 4 driver's licenses. So, you know, any customer doesn't have to worry about uh, driver skill or health or anything like that. Um, also, we will, uh, you know, that's one of the major differences. We're also a local company. Of course, that's very important. Um, and uh, most of our drivers are going to be full-time professional drivers. But as of March 1st, when this new ride-sharing bylaw goes into effect, aren't Uber drivers going to be required to comply to those same regulations, the Class 4 license, the security check, the commercial insurance? 
They will, and I think that's going to be a big roadblock, pardon the pun, for for Uber because um, right now they're still the you know they're waiting for this hybrid insurance to come out, uh, which has come out in Ontario, which basically means that you can drive up to 20 hours per week as an Uber driver and pay I think it's an extra $600 on top of your regular insurance, uh, but that hasn't come to Alberta, and even if it does, it still has to be improved by the superintendent of insurance, uh, which is up for debate whether or not that's going to happen. So this must impact who you can hire then. I mean, I, I'm, I've never gone through the process of looking to sign up as, say, an Uber driver. Uh, is it killing you that I'm mentioning the name of your competitor time and time again? Or is that just part of, it's like <laughs> no, people, b- b- Uber's essentially first in the game on this with some, I know, some, some, some asterisk uh, exceptions uh, in some, some cities around the world. But Uber's kind of been the first one to the point of where people now use that company's name as a verb, right? We're going to Uber home. You're obviously going to try to change that here in Edmonton. And I understand that your business model's looking a little bit different as well in that you'll be maintaining a fleet of vehicles. Yeah. How's that going to work? Well, our fleet, our cars will be owned by the uh, by the drivers themselves, um, but they will be new vehicles. They will, you know, they'll have enough leg room and all that. And in terms of, you know, your point about Uber, um, we think it's it's kind of a natural, you know, Tapcar is a natural evolution of the vehicle for hire industry. For example, if you might remember a company called Napster some years ago um, and at that point they were revolutionary and they changed the industry completely um, but eventually you know there was new technology that came along and the the industry evolved onwards from there um, and nowadays of course as you know Napster is not really on the scene anymore so I'm not necessarily suggesting that will happen with Uber I think you know we'll remain to be seen what happens there but we think that Uber is just a first step you know, I think we can refine this model. We can make sure that, for example, drivers have some benefits, that they have job security, that they're treated well, and, and the customer will appreciate that and hopefully end up using us instead of our competitors. Just a short time ago, we, we saw a 10-point plan that cab drivers in Edmonton had, had been suggested to follow. I mean, new customer service improvements, uh, you know, things like welcome a customer with a smile, keep your car clean inside, no talking on the phone when you have a customer, uh, try to keep water bottles for customers. Now, this is obviously a direct reflection to the threat that that taxi industry is facing, and it's certainly a significant one. Do you believe that if the taxi industry were to improve itself to a degree that consumers found acceptable, that your business model may not be viable? Or do you believe you will offer something that the taxi industry could never offer? Well, I think the problem is that in in many ways, in my opinion, the taxi brokers are the ones who actually dropped the ball on this a long time ago. You know, they perhaps enjoyed quite a comfortable living for for a long time and perhaps became a little bit complacent and perhaps didn't invest enough money in, in advertising or keeping these standards up that you had mentioned. Um, so and investing in technology of course so when uber came into the into the market they're you know at this point they're very much behind the eight ball and i think whether or not they can recover especially with the new bylaw being in existence is is definitely up uh, in the air are you receiving uh, i know that you've put the call out you're looking for drivers do you, do you call them employees what do you call how, what's the structure there is it mostly going to be people that are doing this as part-time work do you think or or do you think there'll be full-time tap car drivers that that could even be like you suggested earlier migrating over from the traditional taxi industry absolutely um you know we're getting a lot of interest from both uber drivers and taxi drivers and our, it is our goal to have the vast majority of our you know we can look at them as partners um, um as full-time drivers that's what 
we're hoping to get and I think that's the way our model is set up um, yeah what would motivate a current uber driver to leave uber and join you well there are many reasons for that i would say uh, the first is and perhaps most important that if you drive for uber you have virtually no job security um you know as you might know uber can what they call deactivate you as an uber driver at any point in time um so if your rating goes below a certain level they could just say okay you're no no longer welcome here um so wouldn't you want that though well, not as an employee, I think, you know, it's nice if you are going to apply for a mortgage or any type of loan. If you if that's your main employment, no bank is going to give but you. But you, as a business provider, would want people to be assured. I mean, I think for Uber, that would, wouldn't that be a marketing boon that if that if driver ratings plummet, they're out of here? I mean, don't people have quality expectations? Absolutely. And, I, th you know, we will always address any quality ratings that come our way. But, you know, we believe that a happy employee is a happy customer. Um, and as you're seeing around the world, there are a lot of Uber employees that are upset about their the way they're being treated, um, their protests around the world, and I think part of the reason for that is that they're not really seen as as partners or you know kind of dealt with in, in a in a respectful way. So we think by treating our drivers in a good way, making sure they can earn a good living, that they have some benefits, that they will be happier. Uh, employees, and that will translate to better customer service. Our guest is Pascal Rifle, a spokesperson with the Edmonton startup Tap Car. How much are you expecting that the homegrown element of this will draw a customer base right out of the gates? Do you think people want to support local, even in this context? Uh, we certainly think so, and we hope so. You know, I mean, th this you know is a is a local local company um, that all the money that is made is going to stay in the economy rather than going to San Francisco or the Netherlands um, and I, I think you know generally speaking Albertans and Edmontonians are kind of boosters for for local companies so we certainly hope that will be the case yeah. now you don't necessarily personally have a background in in the transportation or ride sharing or ride for hire industry do you no I don't no. were you were you was this a situation where you're sitting around and you're seeing bylaws evolve and and technology enter the mix and you're going I can't ignore the opportunity right now well you know as, as you might know you know I was involved in in working with the taxi drivers in the lead up to this bylaw um, and we you know we helped them uh, to kind of see if there would be potential changes to that bylaw that could be you know, beneficial to the taxi industry. Um, so that's kind of where everything came out of that. Um, you know, we one, once we saw the writing on the wall and we, we saw that the bylaw would be passed no matter what arguments we made, the question then became, okay, now that the main competition is going to be against Uber, how do we ensure that drivers can still make a good living? How do we make sure that they can still feed their families and, and you know, enjoy a good living here in the city? And, and that's what, why we came up with Tapcar. Just to clarify, what do you mean you were working with taxi drivers through the formation of this bylaw? Do you mean outside of the context of your role with Tapcar? Well, I was previously the spokesperson for the Alberta Taxi Group, which was a group supported by taxi drivers in, in the city. So this is a very interesting development. A spokesperson for the group now spinning off and starting a new business that, in a sense, could come back to threaten the group you used to work for. No, because we, you know, we never represented the brokers. We were directly just lobbying on behalf of the of the drivers. So we believe firmly that this is the only way that the drivers moving forward will be able to continue to enjoy a good living. So in other words, the majority of employees for Tapcar, the majority of drivers out of the gates could be former Edmonton taxi drivers just working under a different business model. Absolutely. Yeah. It's essentially and just a reinvention? Yes, it's essentially, I mean, you know, but I you know, but the interest has been I would say almost 50/50. 
there's been a lot of Uber drivers who are looking at our model and saying, you know, this is something I can get behind because I would be essentially essentially doing the same work, um, but I would be respected more. You know, I would have uh, more benefits. I could earn a more um, a decent living. So it's it's been I would say about fifty fifty. Will you build your roster of drivers as deep as it goes, or is there a limited number of positions available, so to speak? Well, we would like to keep. You know, we want to make sure we keep the balance. So it. We want to make sure that we have enough work for everybody that works for us. So depending on how many rides we generate, that's how many drivers we will have. If we find that we have more more rides compared to the amount of drivers we have, we'll have to increase the amount of drivers and vice versa, of course. It's been interesting to hear from current taxi drivers that have gone on record speaking about Tapcar. And now, understanding more about your previous relationship with them, it maybe makes a little bit more sense. They've talked about how bittersweet it is to see your business launching, because on one hand, obviously, it's probably another nail in the coffin of the traditional cab industry. But at the same time, they've lauded you for respecting the process, unlike what they say have been Uber's bully tactics. Was that on purpose? Purpose? You know, well, you know, I just, we didn't set the rules, so to speak. You know, it's the the, the the city decided to go with this bylaw the way they did, despite a lot of um, you know concerns from within the industry. So what we're doing is just working with the rules that are presented to us and and building a company that will best suit the drivers. This is a very driver focused company. Would it be fair to call Tap Car a taxi driver driven initiative? Um, is this essentially is it is this a new business born out of the taxi industry as it evolves? In some ways, but you know, actually, it's interesting. You it, there's there are two similar companies, actually three that have started up around the world that are similar to the tap car model. Um, there's one in San Francisco, New York, and and Paris, and a lot of them have come out of concerns by Uber drivers about um, the way they were, you know, treated or how they were able to make a living or not make a living. So it's just kind of, you know, it's a a natural evolution of the industry, I would say. It's been certainly interesting to see some of the the, uh, drama unfold down at City Hall over the last little while. And I've said on this show, I don't blame people that have lost their nest egg. Some people are claiming to have lost an investment when it comes to the drop in value of their taxi plate up to about a quarter million dollars. Mm -hmm. Uh, People have protested, threatened to block streets. People have taken their shirts off in city council chambers. The police have been called in. If some of these now, let's say, former cab drivers were to drive for Tapcar, do you have to implement things like employee standards, employee training? Is there a formal process that people might not anticipate that you're saying has to be there? Well, we certainly, we will do, you know, extensive interviews and we will do background checks. We want to make sure that we have the best drivers uh, driving for Tapcar. And everybody, of course, is welcome to apply. Uh, but we want to make sure we have high standards in terms of professionalism, in terms of uh, courtesy, in terms of driving skills, all of that. So we will make sure that our drivers for Tapcar are the best possible ones out there. Would you expect that a current uh, licensed professional cab driver would stand a better chance of getting hired with Tapcar than somebody just coming in off the street looking to maybe pad their income or kick off a part-time job? Well, if somebody has the experience of driving in the city and they know the city, you know, they have, uh, they've been in the, in-, in the industry for a long time, I think that would certainly be an advantage uh, towards getting a position as a driver with Tapcar, yeah. When can we expect to see Tapcar launch? So it'll be early March. Uh, we don't uh, have an exact date to give you just yet, but it will be in early March.
It'll be interesting to see, you know, how Edmontonians connect with this, and it'll be interesting to see how this continues to contribute to the transformation of, of the ride-sharing industry. Absolutely, and we'll have some more details coming out in the coming weeks as well, so uh, stay tuned. Okay, Pascal Rifle, a spokesperson for Tapcar. Thanks for joining us here in studio. No problem at all, Ryan. Thanks very much. We'll be right back. This is The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Well, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? This whole tap car thing. That was, that was, we'll call it a fact-finding mission kind of an interview because, quite frankly, nobody really knows much about tap car yet. I mean, we'll give Metro a tip of the cap. They were first to report it on Friday, this new business initiative, but they were quoting anonymous sources. They couldn't even name the tap car source. It was a pleasure to have Pascal Rifle in. I told him right as he walked in, I said, hey, like this is, this is you know, ground zero for me, sort of book of Genesis type starting off here. I don't know much about the business. I didn't, I didn't realize how closely tied it is in a sense to Edmonton's taxi industry. I mean, it's probably more accurate to compare it to cabs than to compare it to Uber, isn't it? I mean, isn't it just sort of the, the the reinvented cab model with better technology to answer the threat of Uber in this day and age? We'll see how it goes. Wish them all the best. Always great to see local startups competing with the big internationals. We kicked off a panel on political correctness earlier this morning with Chris Henderson, Bear Lament, and Danny Parody. Mike sent us a text to 630-630, says, I, I have never heard such a politically correct definition of political correctness. He says, political correctness is a, is a symptom of our narcissistic culture in the age of the selfie. In this age, everyone assumes that their needs, their wants, their opinions, and their feelings are more important than the betterment of society as a whole. Mike says, we need to understand that we do have rights and liberties, but we also have responsibilities to uphold these values. And sometimes upholding and defending these values may result in offending certain people, but so be it. Yeah, it was interesting last week, wasn't it, to see some mainstream media commentators otherwise known as members of the media party, go to bat for a professional provocateur, Ezra Levant. Ezra makes his living being politically incorrect. And I think one of the reasons why his message resonates with some people is because there's an appetite for straight talk. Now, the question has to be, is it accurate? Is it fair? Is it respectful? As many people asked or wondered aloud last week, is there journalistic integrity to comments? Is there journalistic accountability? But what was most fascinating about the mainstream media support for rebel media last week was it was support for freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, so to speak. And it didn't indicate that people would necessarily agree with messages, just that they will fight for the right to message. Let me know what you think about this conversation. You can text us to 630-630, or you can send us an email by visiting the show's link at 630ched.com. We'll break now for the headlines you need to know about. It's a big day in the news. We're hearing from Bill Morneau, the federal finance minister, on what we can expect to see out of the budget coming up in a few weeks. Of course, this is the deadline for 
Canada's bombing mission in Syria to cease. Though if you heard Lori Hahn on the show on Friday, you know that for all intents and purposes, that had already occurred. And of course, the Ward 12 by-election. We're not talking about it on this show on purpose. We'll respect the democratic process, but you can expect the results by about 9 p.m. tonight. Of course, voting underway at seven different polling stations in that riding as we speak. Here's an update from our newsroom. You're listening to The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chat, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. 10.35 on the nose on this Monday morning. The producer of this show, Kelsey Wingarek, is back after what proved to be a week-long adventure up north. You were embedded with Canadian forces. Yeah, they uh, put the word out there and said, if a reporter wants to come to the Arctic, and I stopped reading there. I was like, I'm in. How do I How do I make this happen? So I got to spend seven days in Canada's high Arctic in Resolute Bay, Nunavut, with the Canadian Armed Forces, and I was specifically following Edmonton soldiers who are a part of a, a paratroop company, and they got to parachute down into the Arctic, which is just, if if you haven't seen the video yet, it's up on our YouTube page, it's up on our Facebook page. It is the most breathtaking sight I've ever seen. This on the 630Ched YouTube page, the 630Ched Facebook page. Did you jump out of a plane? I was hoping I would get the chance, but no, I actually came up the day after them on a a 12-passenger charter plane, and I think I had a rougher ride than they did. Those things are very tiny. Um, But I came up the next day, and then I got to go down, we're referring to it as on the ice, where they had to set up a camp. And um, actually, I'm going to let Major Ben Schmidt, who is the officer commanding in charge of this whole operation for our Edmonton guys, he kind of summarizes what this exercise was. We actually uh, conducted an airborne operation on Friday, about 48 hours ago, and then jumped into a drop zone, which is on the Arctic Ocean, just a kilometer and a half south of here. Uh, so yeah, the whole intention of this exercise is to uh, demonstrate readiness and uh, work as one team with uh, 38th Brigade, which is our reserve uh, partners. Uh, and as well on the ground here, we have a Canadian Ranger Patrol Group, and a lot of them are uh, Inuit from the local area who support us on this and, and help us. Uh, on the ground. Yes, so how that works is we have guys from Winnipeg, they came in after to take over for Edmonton, the Edmonton soldiers. The Edmonton soldiers had to be out on the ice for 48 hours, and I think to any civilian, we're kind of like, okay, two days, you had to be, you had to deal with it. Um, The biggest challenge that they have out there is, and the biggest enemy is the cold. And the whole point of this exercise really was to survive, to figure out how to function, how to move in these kind of temperatures. The coldest temperature I had to deal with was minus 63 with the wind chill. And uh, where we were camped out, it was called the Arctic Training Center, and we had bunks. Like the, the infrastructure they have up there is actually phenomenal. We had a bunk room, we had a full mess hall, we had uh, a TV room, they had a theater, they had a gym in there. It was phenomenal, but then we had to walk across to the Arctic Training center if I wanted to send anything back or to actually get on one of the satellite phones. And that walk was, I I don't know, maybe 300 feet. And it felt like I was walking for an hour. It's just so cold, so unbearable. But what I can tell you is it was probably about a three-minute walk. Um, It takes about 15 minutes to fully gear up properly um, with the mucklucks and all of the extreme cold gear. And thank goodness they decked me on it because I don't think I would have lasted. Um, it, it, It was taking about... 45 seconds for frost nip to attack Mm. your skin. Now, in your conversation with these soldiers and the commanding officers up there, how many times did you talk about Arctic sovereignty? Is that is that number one on their radar? Is that why they perceive these exercises, this training is so important? 
Yeah, I mean, that is exactly why they're there. And I think the reason they wanted reporters on board with them is is to get the word out that, hey, we are training here. We are capable of getting up here in four hours. That's how long it takes for them to fly directly from Edmonton. So they're saying if, if there's a threat, we can be there. Um, I mean, the guys were, were talking less about sovereignty. A lot of the, 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 the top guy who is the general, he said this is the whole purpose, that this this is ours and sovereignty is certainly top of mind. No, I think for us to understand where you were and why it's important and, and maybe some of the challenges that are encountered up there, we also need to understand what the geography is like up there. I can tell by the way your eyes just lit up that this is this like unlike anywhere else you've ever been. Before I get into it, I'm going to let uh, these two soldiers, I talked to them right after the jump about, you know, what they thought as they flew over and as they started parachuting out. Honestly, have you ever seen Star Wars? <laughs> the planet Hoth? That's what I thought I was jumping into. This is the furthest north we've ever been, and I feel very lucky to be in the position I am in my job where I've got to go to Germany and the Czech Republic and Poland and travel to other places to go jump with other countries. And just coming up here, I know it's still Canada, but it feels like a completely different world, and it looks different, it feels different, and the night sky is clear, and it's nice to kind of just to take a pause once in a while and realize where you are and what you get to do. Star Wars came up a lot, and I haven't seen this, the, the planet Hoth. I guess it's an ice planet. And when I, when actually we had two layovers when we were going to, uh, to Resolute Bay because we're in this tiny passenger plane. So we had to fly into Yellowknife Refuel, then we flew to Cambridge Bay. It just tells you how far up we went. As we, as we landed in Cambridge Bay, even the pilots turned to us and they're like, we're really sorry if we went off course. We think we're landing on the moon. Uh, the, you just see ice and the these big craters and it's just snow forever and the landscape looks like it goes forever and the only way that I was able to distinguish that I was in fact still on planet earth was the fact that the moon is lit up at every hour 24 hours that moon is in the sky right now and it shares the sky with the sun so as the sun rises it kind of blends into the sunset but it's on one side of the sky while the moon is just right there and it's the closest I've ever been to the moon it actually feels like you could step off of a ridge and step right onto the moon. So if, if we're looking at a globe, like if someone has a globe on their desk right now, where you you were almost kind of right up on the very top of it. Yeah, basically. We are the last stop, refuel stop, before going to the North Pole. Wow. You talked to a lot of people, including uh, General Wayne Aaron uh, and a whole bunch of acting chief of Arctic Logistics and the search and res- rescue tech, and I would love to hear more about that. Let's fit in one quick break. When we come back, more on Kelsey Wingarrick's Arctic Adventure, reporting for 630 Chad. This is the Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Producer Kelsey Wingarek just back from Resolute Bay. I, I was just looking it up on Google right now. It's it's a balmy minus twenty six uh, with ice crystals in the air. Oh, just as you mentioned that, I keep thinking of all these things that are going to stick with me forever. Those ice crystals in the air, as the sun is rising, it's it's crazy. Um, they, they're called sun dogs. They create these like rainbow hallucinations almost, and they'll surround you. It's like these little mini tornadoes, but like slowly moving. Everything moves very slow up there. Dan on the text line says, it sounds like a great adventure, very cold, but no bugs. Absolutely. There's a positive. Not a bug, no. Another listener is wondering how they get jet fuel up there. Do you know? Yeah, everything, everything is transported by aircraft. 
Um, and that's the trouble if the, a blizzard moves in. Uh, same with you if you have an emergency, you, have, you sever a limb. You, you probably aren't going to make it if there's a blizzard because it can take four or five days before they can get an aircraft up there to you. I've spent some time doing TV reporting in, in cold temperatures, and I know just even logistically speaking, it's tough because your gear starts to freeze. How did you manage from a storytelling standpoint? Yeah, I mean, I had the video camera up there. I had a GoPro, um, obviously, my, even holding onto the mic it's a cold conductor, so I had hot packs in every place imaginable. I actually put a hot pack between, like I had a head strap for the GoPro. I put it between the back of the GoPro. GoPro, Gro, oh my goodness, GoPro. GoPro thank you. <laughs> between that and the, and my head, so that the battery would stay warm. And it ended up lasting about twenty minutes. And they said I might get like four minutes of video time. And uh, when I when I concerned myself with my logistics and having to be out on the ice for like three or four hours. Let's think of the guys who are out there 48 hours, five days. And this is General Wayne Eyre, who is basically the top dog. Most important uh, challenge we face out here is the environment, is the climate. Um, before, as soldiers, before even considering taking on any, any enemy, any adversary, we have to defeat the climate first. This is an absolutely unforgiving environment. You have to be extremely disciplined in what you do. Every, every action has to be deliberate. You have to be on top of, of all the little things because if you're not, uh, the, uh, the consequences could be tragic. When he's talking about the little things, like um, they, they were wearing these balaclavas that were actually really creepy. They only showed a little bit of their eyes and, and they could speak out, breathe out of their mouth. Um, and then they wear goggles over top of that. If your goggle slips up just a little bit and your balaclava shows a corner of your eye, you will have frostbite. And, and the guy that I was working closely with, he actually looked like someone had come up and burned this, his cheek with a, a cigarette. It was a perfect circle burn where his balaclava and goggle had moved. Um, uh, surprisingly, uh, we had some American soldiers with us. They often like to train with the Canadians. They send some Canadian soldiers to the uh, to America. Almost all of them had frostbite or hypothermia, so I don't know why they were so ill-prepared compared to our guys. Um, but one of their leaders had such severe frostbite on both of his hands, he now has to get skin grafts. So he was, that was day one. They had only spent about two hours on the ice after they landed. He was so concerned, apparently, with what all of his guys were doing and making sure that they weren't getting frostbite that he didn't even think of himself. And he got frostbite through his Arctic gloves. What? He couldn't move his hands. They had them wrapped. So he was obviously sent in. He wasn't able to leave, but they couldn't get a plane in for him until I left, which was, which was like six days after he had come in off the ice. A listener on the text line wants to know if you saw any evidence of global warming. Yeah, so I'm quick to say global warming because we talk a lot about that. We're told what what a sensitive ecosystem it is, but uh, this is this is the acting chief of Arctic Logistics and with the Polar Continental Shelf Program, and they're the ones that kind of run the base year-round. He's the one who deals with all of the researchers who want to come up, check out the water samples, that sort of thing, what's going on. And, and this is what he has to say about temperatures and climate. Since I've started working out of Resolute Bay, I, I, I started working out of here in 1990 actually even before we, we, we had access to that, that tool, that satellite imagery. And, and certainly there has, there has been a change over the time. Uh, my first year in Resolute Bay, I saw ambient air temperatures without wind chill of minus 50, minus 52, minus 53. I live in the Ottawa area and I don't know if any of you are from, from out east. Traditionally in the summertime you get a 10 day, two week period where it's 32, 33 degrees. The humidity's through the roof. It's just, it's stifling. That used to be traditional here in Resolute where you'd have that 10 day to two week 
end of January into, into February. Really, really high pressure, clear, cold, minus 50, minus 52, minus 53 is the coldest air temperature I've seen up here. Um, I haven't seen minus 50 in Resolute Bay for probably 10 or 12 years. So that says something. But what, when I said, so are we pointing our finger at global warming, at, at humans, and he said, honestly, I'm calling this a, a climate cycle. Yeah, and I think a lot of people might suggest that. Julie on the text line says it sounds like they're trying to figure out how to live on Mars up there. You know, that was something that I talked a lot about with the soldiers. It's it's basically the same. Arctic training is the same as desert training, except without the cold when you're in the desert, right? But it's a landscape that goes forever. It's it, the, All the guys were joking a lot about having Arctic delirium, and that was their big joke. But really, it's, it's a serious thing. Sun blindness is a thing because of the reflection. It's all white. The surface is white forever. Uh, one of the one cool thing that happened is I got to be in one of their, it's called a BV-206, and it's, it's really weird train thing that can move on ice. It's on tracks like a snowmobile. And we left to take the, the general to a plane that had landed. And we went to come back and the, it looks like the landscape is completely flat. And suddenly they stopped and they said they moved the camp. They were supposed to wait for us. And we're sitting there and, and they were told, no, just keep going. I think we're going to see it. And suddenly over this ridge, here's the entire camp. And it was completely hidden. But you would never know there was a ridge there. Like we couldn't tell that there was anything changing. And there's no ge- geographical like points to let you know that you've traveled, you know, 10 kilometers or 20 meters. Like everything looks the same. Yeah, you can't say hang a left at the Poplar Grove. (laughs) No. There's not one there. Now, of course, you were up there for a week, but there are people, the locals, that live there full time. When we come back, I'd love to hear more about that. It's a storied history in Resolute Bay, and I would imagine a pretty unique perspective. More with Kelsey Wink-Eric on her Arctic adventure after this. You're listening to The Ryan Jesperson Show on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Producer Kelsey Wingarek back from a week in the Arctic. Aaron, listening in from Red Deer, says it sounds to me like maybe Kelsey should be on your really cool job segment Wednesday morning. What an experience. I definitely recruited a bunch of the, the top dogs from the Canadian Armed Forces because a lot of them have really, really cool history in their careers. So. There will be some Arctic content in Absolutely. weeks to come on I'm, really I'm cool jobs. I am now obsessed. I am now obsessed. Uh, what, what were you able to do connecting with the locals? Were you able to spend some time talking to people who live up in Resolute Bay and maybe who have for several generations? Yeah, luckily I was able to hop in a truck a couple times and, and go down to the community. It's a population of 229 and um, they said almost 50% of the population is youth. So I thought that was really interesting too. I don't know how much you know about the history of the community, but uh, they, they were a part of the government's forced relocation. So they brought, this was back in the late 1950s, they brought two groups from northern Quebec and northern Ontario and moved them up there. And that was basically the government's way of saying this is Canadian territory. Like the, that was their way of protecting their sovereignty, uh, saying that we have it populated. So it is the second most northern community in Canada uh, that kind of fully functions on its own. And, um, you know, I didn't know how to be like polite in some of my questions because I kind of want to say like why the heck do you still live here it's cold sure. year round yeah, it's unforgiving and it was amazing they almost talked about the place like it was apocaly- apocalyptic um, they like oh you, you miss the dark days because you know for most of the winter they don't have any sunlight at all and I even noticed over my seven days there the sun coming up earlier and, and setting later um, so they're getting a little bit more but um, a couple of the things that really jumped out at me as I went to I got a tour of their school 53 students attend the 
school there. And the principal is from Ottawa originally, has been there a year. He's in, in for a three-year contract. Um, but he fell in love with the North and has been teaching um, and doing administration in schools in the North for over 14 years. Did you get a sense that there's a really uh, strong element of cultural awareness there? Does, do, does the cultural history of Canada's uh, Northern people weave itself into their everyday life up there? Or was it just a bunch of, you know, like everyday sort of average Canadians just living somewhere really cold? You know, they were, I would say they were average Canadians. I thought it was interesting. It's worth noting there was a guy who was kind of dressed totally in goth attire with chains and black makeup. And I found that really interesting. But Inuit culture is absolutely top of mind in the schools. Whether you are white or Inuit, you must um, learn about Inuit culture, and you must learn the language of Inuktitut, which is their language up there. Another little weird side thing is that because they were two different uh, groups of Aboriginal people that came up there, they spoke different dialects of Inuktitut, so they can't agree on what the official really? dialect of the community is. Isn't that interesting? How would you describe the demographic of the community? Is it people from a diverse cultural background, or for the most part, is it an Inuit community? It is an Inuit community. All of the teaching staff, there's six teachers on staff, they are all uh, implanted there from Newfoundland and from various parts of Canada. Um, but the, the the biggest struggle that they have is there's not a lot to do there. So all of them have snowmobiles. Um, something worth mentioning, to, if your snowmobile goes down and an aircraft isn't coming up, they rely heavily on the military base there for aircrafts to be coming and bringing stuff. Um, if it goes down and you need a new machine, you have to wait until mid-August and no later than uh, beginning of October because that's the only time that the passage melts enough for a, a barge to come through and deliver big machinery. Think about if your roof collapses in. They don't have that material there. You have to deal with that until August rolls around. So if that happens in January, you've got a long, cold winter. You could have some fascinating conversations with some very interesting people up there. What's the technology like up there? Do people have, you know, Wi-Fi and iPads and people watching Netflix and doing everything else? Yeah, that's. this is going to blow your mind. And I haven't fully processed what this means, but what I was told is they went from igloos to internet in one generation. Hmm. Because think about it, the parents are the ones that moved there in the late 1950s, and their children are now going to school. They have a smart screen up there. They have a brand new computer lab with 12 Mac computers. We don't even have that here at Ched. Like, their, their technology is incredible, but internet is very, very costly for them up there. They told me it's $90 for about 10 gigabytes. I would imagine probably the cost of living, generally speaking, up there is pretty crazy. Did you get into things like northern subsidies? I know we're running up against the clock right now, but how do people manage up there? Yeah, they, they do get government government subsidies, but uh, a big thing for them, think about they all have dogs, and to get a bag of dog food, the cost to get that shipped up for, through Walmart website or whatever is insane. Wow. Yeah. You've got videos posted right now? Yes, and I'm going to have a full page of blogs and videos and photos up to, by the end of the day. Cool. You can, of course, like the 630 Ched Facebook page. You can find us on YouTube as well, and of course, 630Ched.com. Thanks for hanging out, and welcome back. Thank you. That's Kelsey Wingarek. We'll sit down with Edmonton's Archbishop, Richard Smith, right after these news headlines.